Welcome to Activate Church Podcast and thanks for listening. We hope this message helps you and we pray that God speaks to you through this week's message. When I uh, was talking to Pastor Ben about the theme and I began to pray about what to speak on and then when God told me, I was a little bit like, oh no, I, I don't want to do that. And, and see, because when you're a guest preacher, I do this for my job. I'm an itinerant preacher. It's, you know, it's a, even though I've been here once or twice before, it's a little bit like a first date. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you sort of want the people to like you so that you get a second date. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and then God speaks to me and he says, I want you to speak on pride. I'm like, God, that's not first date material. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, 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 that's a little bit like if you go on a real first date and on your first date you bring up marriage and children. Do you know what I mean? Like 99 times out of 100, that's the last date you have. Do you know what I mean? Like every now and again it works and she goes, oh, that's a good, you know. But, but most times that's not a good thing to bring up on your first date. And so I want to talk about pride, but I want to tell you right from the start, don't worry, okay? Because this message is not for you. It's for the person sitting next to you, okay? So just turn to the person next to you now and say, this message is for you. All right, all right, all right. Now that everybody in the room thinks they're better than the person they're next to, you all probably need a message on pride. I remember the time where God really did a number on me in the realm of pride. See, because pride manifests in two ways. It manifests in insecurity, which is actually a form of pride, because I'm consumed by what everybody thinks. But then it also manifests on the other end of the scale in arrogance, where I believe that I'm better than everybody else. And I remember when God really did a number on me, because I didn't feel insecure when I first got saved. And, And see, I was this guy on the Gold Coast, I got radically saved and set free of my addictions in a moment, cigarettes and drugs, and healed of mental illness, and You know, God told me on that night, I was two weeks saved, who I was going to marry in the church. She was the best looking girl in the church, so I was thankful. And and so, and and so, uh, and and, you know, so I didn't feel insecure. I was the guy in my church that started our youth group. I was only about a year saved and youth group went from about 16 kids to then 100 kids and eventually a couple hundred in about two years or so. And, And so in my church, a church of about 300 people, I felt very secure, very confident. Because I could walk into that place and everybody knew my name. Everybody knew of my great exploits. I mean, I was like golden boy, do you know what I'm saying? Like in my church. And, you know, I was the guy that if the meeting got a little bit flat, well, then we'll just get Lucas to come and share a bit of his story again. You know, like I was golden boy. And I walked in and high-fived and they all, why would I be insecure when everybody knew of my great exploits? And I remember it was a couple years into my Christianity. I'd been the youth pastor a year or so. And I went to my first ever Youth Alive conference. It was in Victoria, here. It was actually at Bridge Church. It was called Richmond AOG back then. And and I thought, this is going to be incredible because I just hit 200 people. I was feeling incredibly confident. And I thought, this is going to be amazing. My first ever youth pastors conference. I'm going to arrive. God's going to tell me how amazing I am and then how I can go to even a greater level. And the funny thing was, there was this one guy that I was the most insecure about. I'd never really met him, but his name was James McPherson. He was the youth pastor before me at my current church, but he had already moved on before I'd gotten saved. The reason I was a little insecure about him is because when I run our youth group, every now and again, the youth leaders would say to me, oh, James, he was my favorite preacher. 
And in my heart, I'd be like, I hate this guy, James. Oh, James, he used to write me letters and uh, they were so encouraging and I still have them up on my wall at home and he used to buy us books and all that and, and, and it would just come up and I'd always say, I hate this guy, James, at first. And, and I go to this conference and I feel like, golden boy, I'm ready for God to bless me and I get off the plane, I come to Victoria, I walk into Richmond AOG, there's 500 other youth pastors and youth leaders. And as the moment I walk in, it was like God did a number on me, he had set me up. He then in that moment allowed me to see what was really going on in my heart. And as I walk in this room of 500 other men and women of God, many that were doing greater than me, none of them knew of my great exploits. And as I walked in that room, I felt so insecure like I'd never felt in my entire life. I was literally gripped with fear and insecurity, consumed by what everybody thought about me. And I remember it was so hard to even make conversation or make eye contact. I sort of just kept my head down and it finally got to the, the first part of worship as the meeting was about to start. I was feeling terrible. And then I remember Russell Evans gets up and he was leading the meeting. He was leading Youth Alive back then. And, and after the worship, he says, I feel like I've got a word. He says, there's people here and you're really struggling with insecurity. And I was feeling terrible. I thought, oh, good, finally. Here comes some encouragement, you know, some pastoral care because I'm feeling so terrible. And he says, and the word for you is this. He says, I want you to know, God wants you to know that your insecurity is pride and you are in sin and you need to repent of your sin. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, what are you doing? I'm golden boy, what is this? And in that moment for the next three days, can I be honest with you, it was the worst conference I'd ever been to in my whole life. I deliberately would arrive late and leave early just so that I didn't have to make eye contact, just so I didn't have to make conversation. I get to the final day and Pastor Reggie Dabbs was preaching and he did this message where he said, hey, if you're a male and you're just on fire for Jesus, you're in an incredible season. You're on fire, you're hot for God. He says, I want you to come and make a line and the, the width of the, 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 the church, it was you know, probably like five or six times the width of this. It was quite wide. And he says, if you're a male, I want you to come and stand facing the crowd. And I was in the crowd and I'm like, well, I could have answered your stupid altar call three days ago. But since I've come to this conference, apparently I'm backslidden and in sin. And I just knew with where my heart was at in that moment, there was no way I could respond and stand at that altar call. So I stood in my seat. Then he said, now, if you're a female, it was the same thing. You're on fire. You're just doing incredible for God. And just in a, in a great season, then if you're a female, I want you to come and stand a few meters away from the, the males facing them. And he's making this giant tunnel. And then he says to everyone else, there was probably about 150 of us left in the crowd of 500. And he says, now for the rest of you, you're not doing so well. And I took that as code for backslidden because of my insecurity. He said, I want you to come and you're going to walk through this tunnel and we're all going to pray for you. And in that moment, I'm like, I'm not going through your stupid tunnel. <laughs> because the people standing at this altar, they were the heroes. They were the one I wanted to impress the most. And I honestly, I'm like, I'm not going. And then I have this moment where you're in a very large auditorium with 500 people and you're about to be the only person in the auditorium left standing in the middle of the auditorium. Too proud to admit he needs to go through the tunnel. And I promise you for no other reason that I was going to look like an absolute idiot, I quickly jumped on the end of the train. <laughs> I jumped on the end of the train and I thought to myself, I thought I've got a plan. I'm not going to make eye contact with one single person. 
I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to get out of this tunnel. I'm going to hop on a plane and never come back to this stupid conference again. And so as I keep my head down and we're walking for, I don't know how far it was, maybe 40 meters. And so everyone's praying and speaking in another language. And I'm just like got my head down and they're all, and so I just keep walking. And I get right to the end. And I can see that the wall is about to, um, you know, it comes to the end of the wall. And so I can see the wall at the corner of my eye. And I think to myself, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look up just once. Just to see where the, you know, the exit way is so I can get out of the tunnel and I'm going home. And so I walk past probably 300 men and women that are praying for me. And I get to the very end and I look up just for a moment. And as I look up, the only person I make eye contact with is James McPherson. I literally came out of that altar call as the worship band was playing and I literally fell to my knees and I began to weep in the presence of God. And I'll never forget it as God spoke so clearly to me and he said, Lucas, will you get your eyes off yourself? Will you get your eyes off what everybody else thinks about you? And will you get your eyes on me and what I think about you? See, the way that you break insecurity is when you focus on how God views you and how much he cares about you. You become secure. You know, the amazing thing about this story is the church that I first got saved in, it's a church that I'll always be thankful for. The pastor has now gone to be with Jesus, and he's one of my heroes. But it wasn't a leadership church. It was very much a hospital. You know, I got taught there to move in the power of God, but it was a place where I could come and get healed, and he gave me my first opportunity to, to, to preach. And, but it wasn't sort of a, 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 a world-shaking leadership church. And after being in that house for years, which I'm so grateful for, I actually went to work for a man. His name was James McPherson. The reason that I preach all over the world today, if I had to pick one thing, and of course there are many, but it was actually going and getting under an influential leader and man of God that actually taught me to become a better preacher, that opened up the world for me, that gave me credibility in what I was doing. See, the reality is your destiny is connected to people that are bigger and better than you. But insecurity will stop you getting around them because you always feel a little uncomfortable when you get around people that are bigger and better than you. See, when we're insecure, we like to be the biggest and the best in our circle because then that makes me feel good. See, the thing about pride is it's such a dangerous thing because pride is so hard to see. See, the reality is we all experience pride. It's part of our fallen human nature. But it's an incredibly hard thing to see. There's a terrible thing that happens... In some cities in America, especially places of colder climate, like places like Chicago. And it's quite a tragic story that I'm about to share. But it happens every year in winter, where often entire families will actually die sitting in their cars while it's snowing. And what happens is because of the heavy snow, as they sit in their car and they think, let's just stay here for a bit longer... And what happens is the exhaust pipe gets blocked with snow and ice and the carbon monoxide starts to flow back into the car and it's happened many times where entire families will fall asleep, eventually die and never wake up. And you think to yourself, how could a parent be so irresponsible to allow that to happen? But the dangerous thing about carbon monoxide is you can't smell it, you can't see it, you can't taste it, you just end up dead. It's a little bit like the sin of pride. It's the hardest thing to see. You often don't realize you're in it. You can't see it. You can't taste it. You just end up dead, spiritually speaking. And see, at least if we are struggling with a sin like pride, uh, sorry, lust, 
at least I know that I'm struggling with that particular thing. Because I know that my thoughts are going to places where they shouldn't go or my eyes are going where they shouldn't go. But, but the dangerous thing about pride, it can be this thing that is so hard to see. It was the very sin that kicked Lucifer out of heaven. Let me just look at a couple of scriptures so that we could create a bit of a framework. Proverbs 29, 23. It says, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Uh, in other words, pride will bring you low, but a humble spirit, same as lowly, will lift you up. James 4, 6 says, God opposes, different translation, but that's okay. That was my fault. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Another translation says he resists the proud. It doesn't say he stops loving, but he resists. He opposes. But then it says he gives grace to the humble. This whole series of not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. You know the word grace, where it says here he gives grace to the humble. It's not grace as in forgiveness of sins. It's the word grace, meaning the empowerment of heaven. God empowers the humble to be what they could never be on their own. I don't know about you, but I don't want 2018 to just be a result of what I could achieve by myself. I want to see the grace and favor of God that would cause and empower me to be what I could never be by myself. But see, that happens when we are in humility. James 4.10, it says here, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So there's two observations and I could have read another 10 scriptures and we'd come up with the, the, the same observations. The observations are quite simple. When we are pride, in pride, we will be brought low. We will be resisted. But when we step into humility, the grace of God will empower us and lift us up. But then another observation, and again, I could bring quite many scriptures. It also says about humility that you are to do it to yourself. It says humble yourself. Nowhere in the Bible does it say ask God to humble you. Never pray a stupid prayer like that. I would even go as far to say that if you hear someone next to him worship saying, humble me, move away. <laughs> like get a few rows away from them. Because God's getting ready to, do you know what I'm saying? Like when the angels hear that prayer, they're like, oh good, here we go again. This is going to be fun, right? Don't ask God to humble you. The Bible says do it to yourself. Humble yourself. See, what I want you to understand, and it works with the, the, you know, the series for this year, is this is not a message about a God that wants to point out pride in your life. This is a message that comes from a loving dad that wants to get so much grace and empowerment to you that it would make your life look incredible and like you've never dreamed it could look. So it's not a God that's trying to point out the pride in your life. It's a dad that says, come on, I want to get you into a greater realm of humility so that I can release the favor and power of heaven that I could lift you up and cause you to become what you can never be by yourself. You know, the definition of pride really is that I can do this by myself. I don't need you. Like I said, flat, uh, pride has two spectrums. It's insecurity. And sometimes insecurity masquerades as false humility. That's why sometimes it's so hard to see whether someone is humble or proud. And then again, the other side is arrogance. But the definition of humility is best seen in a tradition that was instituted by a rabbi of the 1800s. He would get the people in his synagogue to carry around two pieces of paper, one in each pocket. And they would read these bits of paper depending on which one they needed to read. 
One piece of paper would say this, I am but ashes and dust. The other bit of paper on the other side would say, for my sake, the world was created. And these two bits of paper combined actually results in true humility. See, because true humility, I believe, is twofold. It is an understanding of the human condition. That I have a sinful nature that is weak and flawed and I can't do it by myself. So it's an understanding of my fallen, flawed humanity. But it's coupled with an understanding of God's position and stance toward me. That yes, I'm weak. Yes, I have a sinful nature. But He is for me. He wants to bless me. He loves me with all of my mess and weakness. And it's when you understand these two things together that you end up in true humility position for grace to be empowered. See, one piece of paper by itself that the Jewish rabbi instituted will actually end in pride. Because, and you meet Christians like this where they just believe the first one. Well, I'm just ashes and dust. I'm so weak. I'm like a worm. And they almost say it, it's like it's a religious, beautiful thing. But that's actually false security. It's actually pride. Oh, I'm no good. But then other people get the one piece of paper by their cells. All this is created for me. And it ends in arrogance. But when you can get an understanding of those two together. Yes, I know who I really am without him. Yes, I know I'm weak. Yes, I know I'm flawed. But I also know he's on my side. He's helping me. He wants to bless me. When you get those two things. See, one of the big misconceptions of humility is that humility is weak and wimpy. But I remember God speaking to me. I said, give me a word picture in the Bible of true humility. And instantly he took me to King David. Where David as a teenage boy turns up to a battle. Where a giant is intimidating soldiers that have been trained their entire lives. They're cowering in the corner. But this young boy, David, a teenager, he turns up and he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Today I'm going to cut off his head and give his body to the birds of the air. Could you imagine if a 16-year-old turned up speaking like that? We'd say, who do you think you are, you young whippersnapper? But it was actually true humility. See, because true humility is incredibly confident. See, we often call sometimes what is pride is actually godly confidence. Because when I fully get before heaven and I understand, God, you know my flaw, you know my weakness, but God, I thank you that you're on my side. I thank you that you're working for me. Then you'll see a confident person because I know who I am, but I also know who he is. I want to give you three quick things. And these things are sort of like a dashboard. Because like I said to you, pride is incredibly hard to see in ourselves and even in others. Sometimes we judge people as proud, but they're incredibly humble. Other times we think people are incredibly humble, but they're actually incredibly proud. I know there's been seasons in my life where I thought, man, I was really humble in that season. But now with foresight, I look back and go, man, I was proud. It's an incredibly hard thing to see. And I felt God give me three things that sort of become like a dashboard. That these three things reveal humility. But the good news about these three things is they don't just reveal, because if for you it's not revealing a lot of humility... The great things about these three things is they don't just reveal, but they also build humility. And the more that we build humility, 
the more that we are positioned for that grace that empowers you to have the marriage that you can't have. That empowers your finances to go to a place that you could never dream of. The first one is this. The first one that reveals humility is prayer. Prayer reveals humility. And if we were to look at two people in the Bible, King David and King Saul, Saul lost the kingdom and his destiny because of insecurity. David was far from perfect, but continued to be lifted up because he was a humble man. And when we look at David, we see the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. You can't be a man after God's own heart without being a man of prayer. When we look at Saul, we hardly see Saul pray a prayer his entire journey. Second Chronicles 7.14, a very famous scripture, it says this. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and what? So how do you humble yourself? You pray. Think about it. If I was to get up in the morning when nobody is watching and spend time in prayer, whether it's five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, but if I was to do that and nobody is watching, why else in the world would I get up and in pray to an invisible God when nobody is watching if it were not for true humility? That I actually understand, God, I'm flawed and I'm weak and I really need you today. But I'm also aware that you're actually on my side and you want to release blessing. You want to release favor. You want to help me to conquer and dominate this day. Why else would I pray if it were not for an act of humility? I wonder if for you, is prayer in your life the spare tire that you keep in the boot of your car or is it the steering wheel of your life? Because so often we have prayer as a spare tire. In other words, I got that bad diagnosis. Oh, it's okay. I can get prayer out of the trunk. Or that relationship ended. Oh, okay. Everything's gone to, you you know, I don't want to swear. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Everything's ended up not really good. But that's okay. Don't worry. I can go. I haven't opened the boot for a while, but I could get prayer out of the boot. God doesn't want prayer to be the spare tire. God wants prayer to be the steering wheel of your life. That you would just be a person that is continually going before Him in humility, saying, Come on, God, steer our business, steer our marriage, steer our parenting, steer our finance. You know, I. This is a sometimes convicting thing that I'm about to say but I need to understand I'm also speaking to myself because as a minister there have been seasons where I've had seasons of of hardly any prayer and the statement that I would say is this is if because I believe that prayer is the ultimate act of humility but if prayer is the ultimate act of humility then you've got to say that prayerlessness is the ultimate act of pride when you have seasons of prayerlessness then subconsciously without realizing you're actually saying, hey God, I've got it. I'm okay. I've learned enough on my own to do it by myself. I, as Aussies, and I love being back home, and because I'm an Aussie, that's for sure, and just lived in America for, you know, about a year and a half. But you know how you meet some Americans, and they're a little overconfident, And us Aussies, we don't like that. That rubs us up the wrong way. And I remember I'd been traveling and my family went to this connect group. And they came home raving about this family. They're very wealthy. He's a businessman. His business does like 100 million a year. 
they live in a mansion and, you know, my kids go to the connect group and they're playing in their house and there's trampolines and swimming pools and soccer nets. And, and so they're all raving about this connect group. And I think this is great. My family loves our new church, found a connect group. And I meet the guy on the way into church. And I just quickly mention my name and he is like overconfident. Do you know what I'm saying? And as I meet him, I'm like, oh man, I don't, I don't think this is going to work. You know, like, because I'm an Australian and you're like way too American. Anyway, uh, I hope this is not recorded. Anyway, if you're in America listening, I love you. I just want to say, anyway. Uh, and, and so, but then I think to myself, my family loved it and felt so blessed. So I've got to give it a, you know, I've got to give it a go. And so we go to meet this family for frozen yogurt. Him, his wife, his children. So we get there and the kids are playing. The wives are sitting down at the table. Him and I are, uh, are, are, you know, lining up to get our frozen yogurt. And I don't know him. So I just go to make small talk. I know he's got a very successful business. And and so I say, oh, well, how long ago did you start your business? And he says, oh, about 12 or 15 years ago, I can't remember. And, and then so just to make conversation, I say, oh, so you went through the GFC, the global financial crisis. And, and I said, man, how'd you go through that? And he looks at me. He's like, we crushed it. We absolutely crushed it. And in that moment, I was like, yep, no, we can't be friends. <laughs> can't happen. Being confirmed. And I couldn't just get my kids and wife and hop in the car and leave. We had to finish the frozen yogurt dates. And then we get sitting down and he starts to open up and share about his life. And he talks about when he was a very much younger man, his marriage broke up just a couple years into his relationship. And he talked about how he's very arrogant and never would put himself under authority. But he talked about he got so broken when his wife left him. That for the first time in his life, he submitted himself under his pastor. He went back home to where he lived. And he submitted himself under his pastor, who was a much older man. That pastor, he said, he taught me to become a man of prayer. He said, I would meet my pastor, just meet him every single morning at 5.30 in the morning. And we'd pray to seven every single morning, Monday to Friday. He says, my business now earns over $100 million a year. And young men come to me all the time. And they want to know what my secret is, but they don't ever like my answer. He says, the reality is for the past 10 or 15 years, almost every single Monday to Friday, I get up and I pray between 5.30 and 7 and I get before heaven. See, what I had judged as pride was actually godly confidence. See, I was seeing a man that was so confident about life because every morning he got up and he said, God, you know I'm weak. You know I'm flawed. But God, help me to know what to do. Help me to go to another level. See, the first thing that reveals humility is prayer, but it also builds humility. The second thing is simply teachability. Teachability reveals humility. You know, David was a humble man and was blessed because of it, but he was teachable. He was the king, the ruler of the world. He did a very bad thing. He slept with another man's wife. He then murdered the husband. But the prophet comes to him and confronts him. But David humbled himself in sackcloth and repented. David in that moment could have had that prophet killed. He could have said, who are you to come and tell the king what I've done wrong? But David was a teachable man. When Saul was confronted, he made excuses and blamed everybody else. Because he wasn't teachable, which reels humility. I wonder how teachable you are. Because it's very easy. The reality is, me including myself, we all think we're very teachable. But one of the, a few of the keys that you know how teachable you are is how many people do you have in your life 
that are allowed to speak into your life, even when they say something that you don't really want to hear. Another way we find out how teachable we are is when you meet someone new, how much of the time are you trying to tell them everything they need to know about you compared to how much of the time are you trying to listen about their journey so that you could learn something in your life? You know, I, a good friend of mine, he serves in one of our campuses in San Diego and we do double services in, in, the, in the campus he goes to and he serves in both and he was talking to his friend who is a neurologist, an expert in the brain. And he says to his friend, he says, man, I love going to church. He says, but I've got to be honest. He says, I never get anything out of the second sermon, hearing it for the second time. And his friend, who is an expert in the brain, neurologist, says, well, I can actually tell you why that is. He says, the way that your brain is wired and function is that when you approach a situation thinking that you already know everything that's about to be told, your brain actually shuts down and is unable to learn new information. When God says that he lifts up the humble and the prideful, it's even wired into the very way that your brain functions. When you approach a situation like you already know it all, you are unable to find that bit of information that could be the key that allows you to have the marriage you never dreamed of. Often, the lessons we learn through our mistakes and failures are the lessons our pride wouldn't allow us to learn. Teachability. The last thing, just if the keyboarder could come, and I want to pray in a moment. But the last thing is this, is thankfulness reveals humility. You know, the, the, the very fact, uh, if I was, you know, let's just say Zach did something very awesome for me. Like he gave me a great gift. That could be a word, Zach. I'm not 100%, okay? But when I said it, I felt something on it, okay? I don't know. I'm just joking, right? But let's say if Zach did something great for me. I'm definitely feeling something. No, I'm just joking, right? Uh, right. Let's just say if Zach did something great for me, and then I was to say to Zach, seriously, Zach, thank you so much. The very fact that I say thank you is an act of humility. Because I am acknowledging, Zach, I'm now better because of you. In other words, I was weak, but you made me strong. So the very act that when you say thank, thank you, it is an act of thankfulness. David wrote most of the book of Psalms, always thanking God. Saul built a monument unto himself. Thankfulness is an act of humility. Remember the story in the Bible, if you've heard it, if you haven't, that's totally cool. But Jesus, as he enters Jerusalem and he rides a donkey, that had never been ridden. And he rides on that donkey and they're waving palm branches. And it was sort of a declaration that the king of kings was, had now arrived. He rode in on a donkey, which was really a mention of that he came in peace rather than on a horse that he came for war. And he rides in on that donkey and they're all crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the highest. What an amazing moment. As they screamed his praise, declared he was the king of kings. That donkey was born for that moment. It had never been ridden. It had been set aside for this special moment that he'd be the one that gets to carry the king of kings in Jerusalem. Could you imagine if that donkey born for that moment got to carry the king? But as everybody's screaming and declaring, imagine the donkey got overwhelmed by all the praise. And just for a moment, he thought, I'm going to stand up. 
Jesus falls off the back. You don't want to be that ass. <laughs> See, this particular point here of thankfulness, sometimes where people can fall into pride is people that are super gifted. And I want to speak to you if you feel like you, you've just got a great gift. Maybe you're really incredibly intelligent. You're, you're, you're super smart. You've, you've got a personality that just naturally attracts people. Let me say this to you. Never, ever, ever apologize for being super gifted. Just remain thankful. The very fact that it's called gifted gives you a clue that something was gifted. Yes, you stewarded it. Yes, you made it better. But you were gifted with something that other people didn't get. So don't apologize. Dominate life. But just remain thankful. God, thank you that you gave me a great mind. Thank you that you've given me a personality. Thank you that I was born into an incredible family. Just stay thankful. Psalm 100 verse 4. It talks about enter his gates with thanksgiving. His courts with praise. You can't even get into the presence of God without thanksgiving. I remember God speaking to me. He says, Lucas, you don't enter with thanksgiving because I need it. Like God's not in heaven and he's having a bad day. He's like, he's freaking out. He's like, North Korea, Donald Trump. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, you know, He's not in heaven freaking out. So it's not, he doesn't need my thanksgiving because then I pump him up a bit. Do you know what I mean? Like God, you're so amazing. Goes, oh, thank you, Lucas. I was so down. <laughs> he doesn't tell me to enter with thanksgiving because he needs it. He tells me to enter with thanksgiving because as soon as I get thankful, it puts me in a position of humility. And now he says, hey, let me release some grace. Let me release some power. But when I sort of walk in in pride, already I can't get what I need to get. But thanksgiving positions me for humility. I want to tell a story. and I haven't even told my dad I was going to tell this and I hope he's okay with it. But you know, my, my, my mom and dad, and he won't mind me saying this, but back in the early years, struggled with addiction. My dad, if you were to hear his story, and the guys heard some of it upstairs, if you heard his story about his dad, his dad was just out of control. Very hard man, very angry, alcoholic. My dad saw some horrific things. And, and back in the early days, my parents divorced when I was about five, and we'd go stay with dad on Friday nights. And, both from my mum and dad would see marijuana and things like that. And then eventually I led to a place of addiction where for 13 to, from 13 to 23, I started with marijuana. And eventually it ended up a lot worse and injecting needles and ended up mentally ill and suicidal. But, but I've always had a really good relationship with my dad. We'd always go and do fun things. We'd go to football games and go camping. And, and I've always had a good relationship then when I became a Christian, you know, I still struggle with certain things because I had this addictive nature. And some of it was things that I was taught growing up by my mom and my dad. And although I had a really incredible relationship with my dad, and it's always been great, every now and again, I would have bits of resentment that would come up in my heart. And that resentment would come up, and it was probably just natural things that as a little boy, every boy wants mom and dad to stay together. So there was resentment in a sense that mum and dad divorced. 
But then probably resentment that some of the things I ended up battling with later in life, pre-Christianity and Christianity, were things that were modeled to me. And I remember I read this book and it absolutely rocked my world. It was probably about five, six years ago. And it talked about honoring your parents. And and like I said, we we had a really good relationship. It was just every now and again, I'd have moments where I felt anger come up. And I knew it was coming from some sort of place. And really it was a place of resentment. But then I read this book and it talked about honoring your parents. And as I began to pray, I felt God speak to me. And I felt God say to me, I want you to give $1,000 to your mum, your dad, your mum's dad, and your mother-in-law. You know it's God when God says, give $1,000 to your mother-in-law. <laughs> but then I felt him tell me, and as I was just praying, it was something I wanted to do. I felt him tell me to get a card, and on one side of the card, honour each parent, And then on the other side of the card, get my wife to honor each parent as well. So she wrote a whole thing honoring my dad, my mom, her mom, her dad, and I did the same. And then when I got to my dad, I started to think about, and there were many things, we had many good times, but I started to think about what I would write. And there were some things of resentment because I had ended up in addiction. But then I had this moment where God took me back to such a horrific life that my dad had. And some of the stories that he would tell me at times of what he saw his dad do to his mum. And I wonder he ended up where he did in his earlier life and the divorce obviously rocked his world. And, and then God took me in this moment where I actually started to remember that my dad, the friends that he hung around with back in those early days, that most of them were in the same circumstance. Most of them were pretty broken, divorced, had children, But most of my dad's friends, nearly all of them, never committed to seeing their children. And as I started to just remember in this moment in God, I started to think about my dad. And I started to think about the fact that with his own personal struggles, with all that he'd grown up with, but for my entire childhood, there was almost never a Friday night that my dad didn't pick us up at five o'clock. and We'd stay the night with him. And he'd bring us home the next night at Friday night. I promise you, in the whole, it was probably 10 years from from 5 to 15, 16 when we wanted to sort of do our own thing. I could count on on one hand the Friday nights that he didn't come just because he, you know, did a holiday or whatever. But you know, I already had a good relationship with my dad. But when I sent that card, something shifted within our relationship. See, because I made a decision to stop focusing on what I didn't get and start to be thankful for what I did get. And when you step into thankfulness, it's actually an an act of humility. And then God says, all right, cool. Now I can empower you to have what you could never have by yourself. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Let me tell you, the way that you get all of his spirit is when you position yourself in humility. If you'll be a person of prayer. If you'll be a person that keeps being teachable. If you'll be a person that's thankful. I wonder if you're here today because I I said the ultimate act of humility is prayer, but it's a little bit of a white light. Because really the ultimate act of humility is when someone surrenders their life to God. That's the ultimate act of humility. When someone comes to a place in their life where they say, you know what, God, I want to put you in charge. 
God, I want to make you the boss. You're not lording it over me saying, I better be the boss. I'm surrendering to you and I'm giving you the keys and I'm saying, I'm going to submit my life to you and you can be the Lord of my life. That's the ultimate act of humility. I wonder if you're in this place today and you've never given your life to Jesus. We trust you enjoyed this week's message. For any more information about Activate Church, check out our website, www.activatechurch.com or download our app online and have a great week.